The other day, I was rummaging through some old boxes, and I happened to stumble upon a yearbook of mine. should be up on the screen. This is a yearbook of my final year of primary school. Class of 2002, Mangafau Primary School, and I got to design that cover. <laughs> so being a little curious, uh, I had a look inside. Uh, there were some nice photos, embarrassing class photos. See if you can spot me. Uh, reminders and trinkets of the things that we did that year. All the stuff you'd expect. And at the back, there were short blurbs from every single graduating student uh, from that year, uh, answering a few questions about themselves. What was your favorite subject in school? What do you want to be when you grow up? That kind of stuff. Pretty generic. But then there was this question, kind of struck me. What scares you the most? What frightens you the most? And as you can expect from any unassuming 10 or 11-year-old, my peers had written stuff like spiders or the dark or even the dentist. (laughs) But then I looked over at mine, and I'd written failing. I was scared of failing. Now, I thought that was a bit strange for a 10-year-old to write. So I was trying to remember, why, why would I write this? It seemed too serious. Why was I afraid of failing? Then it hit me. It's because I'm Asian. <laughs> I don't know if you know much about Auckland Central Asian kids, but if we fail, then it's pretty much game over at home. And on top of that, my parents wanted me to be a doctor. For me, doing well at school and not failing was my world. I could work with spiders in my room, sit in the dark, visit the dentist, as long as it meant I didn't let my parents down. And this fear meant using my time, my days, to making sure I didn't fail. The way that we use our time points to what we fear the most, what we long for, what we think is the most important. And so, according to mathcats.com, today I'd have done 26 years, 9,800 days, or just over 235,000 hours. And the minutes keep ticking from this minute to the next. I've just spent 235,000 hours living life, and if I've done that to merely be a doctor, or a worker, or a husband, or just to not let my family down, then I've missed the most important thing in life. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a doctor or a worker or a husband or a wife for that matter, but this passage tells us that something has gone on that pales every other thing in this universe, makes all of that seem like the tiniest dot, just a blip on the radar. And that thing is this. God came down. God walked this earth God the creator became creation. God became creation so that you might be recreated. Now, the writer of this passage that we had read to us, Paul, was a Jewish man. Uh, He lived in the first century around Jesus' time, about 2,000 years ago. And his background was that he actually hated Christians. In fact, he used to kill Christians. They're annoying. But he saw something so amazing, so amazing something beyond simply just the people called Christians, something so colossal about this man, Jesus, that it changed everything that he did. And his claim was that Jesus is God. Have a look with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. So looking at this, I understand there's a lot packaged into these sentences. But I want to zoom in on just one key point here. Paul's claim is that Jesus Christ is God. Not simply like God, but that he is God. I don't know what background some of you might have come from, how much you may know about Christianity, or who some of you think Jesus is. But this simple truth means the only way to know God is to know Jesus, because Jesus is God. And if this is true, then we need to determine every minute of our lives based on this man. We often read and hear quotes such as, live life your way, be who you want to be. Don't ever let someone tell you you can't do something. This week at the University Clubs Expo, I spoke to quite a few students who are all about everyone being free to do whatever they want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. The common thread we see in these lines is that there doesn't actually seem to be any real reason to listen to anybody. Just do what you want. Unless, unless God steps into the picture. By very nature, what God is, is the one that sets what order looks like in this world. Sets the laws holding this world together. And when we determine what the rules are, what things should be like, we're playing God. But if the real God has already turned up, then it's kind of awkward for those pretending to be him. When I was younger, just a little boy, around the time when I wrote that yearbook, I used to hang out at my dad's accounting firm and sit in his big chair. He owned an accounting firm and he had a big office. Uh, he was the big boss and I wanted to be like him. My first email address, in fact, was bigbossming at hotmail.com. <laughs> Don't spam me, but it is there, so you can, you know, it's proof. And as I was sitting in his chair one day after school, the phone started to ring. No one was picking up, so, so I thought I would. Hello, I say. Then the guy on the phone asks, can I please speak to Mr. Yong? And I thought to myself, what did my dad say? Mr. Yong? I'm technically Mr. Yong. <laughs> so I said, yes, speaking, as you do. There was a slight pause from the man, but then he started speaking really fast in Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> now, I can't speak Mandarin fluently, so I kind of freaked out, and I quickly ran to get my dad shortly after. Before this phone call, the skies were the limit for me. I was sitting in the big boss chair, on the big boss desk, and even my dad's employees had to treat me nicely. I felt like I called the shots, and I was comfortable. But when I was found out, my plane started to crash. And it's the same for all of us. We think we call the shots. We all sit comfortably riding the wave of life until the real God shows up. Where in your life are you pretending? Pretending to be God, making up the rules, calling yourself the big boss. I know for me, where I am most tempted to play God is when it comes to my own comfort. When stuff gets hard, uncomfortable, I get tempted to run. 
And I always fall into this trap of thinking the world revolves around my expectations, my standards. And I shamefully confess to you now that I sometimes even tell my disabled mom that she's been nagging me too much, as if I know what nagging is. And what a hypocrite I've been when I look back to my childhood and how many times I've said to my mom, where's my underwear? What's for dinner tonight? I want this toy. Are we there yet? She never once told me I was nagging her too much. Wherever you are pretending, when you look at the life of Jesus, unlike us, he truly is God. He loves perfectly, and he sets the right and only expectations in this world. Up on the screen will be a quote from Josephus. This guy's a Jewish military general and historian around the time of Jesus. This guy's not a Christian. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds, and he was a teacher of such people as accepted truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks, and when upon accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still, still to this day not disappeared. My point here is that even the way non-Christians saw Jesus was monumental. Even they claimed he performed surprising deeds. If Jesus Christ is God, it makes him worth listening to, worth watching, worth worshipping. And when I say Jesus Christ is God, I don't actually know if many of us realize how big of a deal this actually is. It is so hard to appreciate something when you don't understand it. For some parts of the world, the All Blacks being the Rugby World Champions doesn't mean very much. Now, I'm, now I know that might be a shock to some of you, but I've got to be honest. That was actually me at one point. I remember being so into my science and physics and being amazed at the recent discovery of gravitational waves. Yet for many people, this doesn't even register for them. For others, maybe it's going to a fancy restaurant and not understanding why a measly meal is worth $200. But the thing with these examples is that they're all to do with our likes, our interests and hobbies. But Jesus Christ being God is unlike anything else. It doesn't depend on what we like or are interested in. It has direct relevance to every single person here. This is the maker of you the maker of the person next to you, the one that made the sun that keeps this planet going, the one who makes each heart beat, packaged into a human being. Jesus Christ is God. Have a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. This is speaking about Jesus here. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. All things in this world are being held together by God. They keep going because God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, he lets it. And if we look a little later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. It is here we realize God's very nature. This isn't some energy force in the universe, not some alien or superman, not a distant, disinterested God who made us for the sake of it, but God dwelling fully in Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully human. And like a human, much like us, 
He came from a woman's womb. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. And he experienced the full range of emotions like us, from happiness to sorrow. He lived on this earth just as we do. It is absolutely worth our time to learn about this man, Jesus. It's a no-brainer bargain. Learning about Jesus is learning about God. Two for the price of one. And as you engage with the Jesus we see in history, you are engaging with the very God who is keeping you alive right now. And this God who is keeping us alive, he died. Jesus died. History writes that Jesus was killed. Come with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus Christ moved from infinite heights in his very nature, God, and he moved to infinite death, depth, death itself. And he willingly did this. He willingly died. Why would anyone do that? I certainly know there's not many reasons I can think of to willingly die. Now, there's perhaps death for a greater good, where someone enlists for the army, for example, and is prepared to die protecting his country and family, people they love. And even then, only the most noble are brave enough to do this. The Bible touches on this in Romans 5, verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And we do honor people who serve in this way. We like them. I remember driving through Huntley and seeing giant poppies painted on the building walls saying, we will remember them. The Anzacs who gave their lives serving our nation. And much like this, Jesus' attitude in his death was about service too. Jesus willingly died to serve others. If we look back at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, very quickly, it says God, Jesus, took on the form of a slave. God didn't come into this world as a man simply to rule over us with an iron fist. He came to serve. And Jesus says this in his own words in Mark 10, 45. Jesus, word, Jesus speaking here. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the question is, how exactly was his death a service to us? Some of us might even be thinking, I don't feel like I need any help. I feel fine. Even the world, it looks like it's fine as it is. But it's exactly for people like you that God needed. He needed to come as Jesus. And it all starts with this one thing that has invaded the whole world around us. Everything. You and me. Sin. What do you think of when you think of sin? Is it simply taking something that doesn't belong to you? Is it telling that little lie so you don't hurt that person's feelings? Maybe you've had sex outside of marriage. Is that a sin? Perhaps you think of the seven deadly sins you see on TV. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Well, maybe you just put it under this category called bad stuff, archived in your brain somewhere. Whatever comes to mind for you, these things I've just listed out are just symptoms. Symptoms of something much bigger. Symptoms of something hiding away in the dark crevices of our minds. We don't even realize it's there sometimes. 
leaves and branches sprouting out from a deeper root. A root that comes from one thing and one thing only. The desire to play God. The desire to make up the rules of life and pretend to be the big boss. We talked about it before. I know what's best for me. You can't tell me what to do. Truth is all relative. That's what you believe, but I believe something different. Here's one I ran into a lot at the University of Auckland Clubs Expo. Oh, I, um, I don't believe anything specific. I'm just choosing to keep my options open. Sin is the single greatest stumbling block for everyone, preventing people from seeing the reality, the truth of the world around us. The real issue isn't or not if there's enough evidence for God or, or just wanting to keep their options open. The issue is actually wanting to stay in their own world, a world they've made, it's comfortable. A world where man can play ignorant to their maker and do what they want. And it's addicting. It's like a child who loves the sweet taste of a liquid in a bottle with a skull on it. Ignorant to what it actually is. And they just want to keep drinking it. The child needs to be taught that the skull in the bottle means it's deadly. But it just tastes so good. The child doesn't care. Keeps reaching for it. Ignorant to what they've been told. But Jesus' service to us is not simply telling us what to do and what not to do. Jesus' service to us is taking that bottle of poison and drinking it up before we can. And in Jesus' death, he demonstrates the consequences of that. The consequence being death itself. But what makes his service beyond our comprehension? He didn't just take on death for good people, like we read about before. People worth dying for worth protecting, he died for the unrighteous, people like you and me, people who play pretend. Romans 5, Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, sin isn't simply just doing bad stuff that might affect one another like a serial rapist or an ex-murderer or someone who beats their wife at home. Sin is ultimately against God. Often people fall into this trap of comparing their standards of good to one another, other people. Oh, those people are way worse than me. I'm pretty good, so I'm not really a sinner. I'm, I should be fine. This thinking is us being blades of grass comparing who's taller than who. But until we look at the center of the field and see that towering cowrie tree, we won't realize how small we really are. We do this when we take our eyes off God. We've taken our eyes off of Jesus. Whatever you think makes you a good person, the reality is your expectations of good are simply the expectations you are making up. This is at the very root of sin itself. The one true standard is, this, is the standard set by the maker of this universe. And this makes sense. And it's something we can actually relate to. When any of us make something, there is an expectation with what it is and what it does. I remember being a kid and trying to make a spaceship out of Lego. I spent time, energy, and passion on that Lego spaceship. It was awesome. But then my sister came along and she said to me, that's a nice car. <laughs> car? I thought to myself, my spaceship isn't a car. I was offended. But just imagine for a second 
What if my own Lego spaceship started talking back to me, shaking its little wing at me saying, I'm not a spaceship, I'm a car. I know I'd bust that Lego right up and start over. (laughs) This is what we're doing when we sin. When we reject God, we are denying that we are children of God. Denying the love and purpose that has been given to us. We deserve to be busted up. Now, I don't know what you're afraid of. Perhaps it is failing like I was. Maybe you're afraid of change, the uncertainty of what's next, not wanting to waste your time or be hurt from disappointment. A common thread I noticed with uni students this week, a lot of people seem to be afraid of commitment, even small commitment. I'm not sure what's caused this, but people were so fickle and consistent with with my conversations with them, unwilling to even commit to what they were saying themselves. But the truth is, we've all lost sight of the ball. Our greatest fear should be God, afraid of his perfect and right justice pouring out on mankind, on us. However, thankfully for us, the world wasn't made by the hands of men, people who would probably have destroyed us like I destroyed my Lego spaceship. But we were made by God. God who crosses perfect justice and perfect mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ. And instead of simply destroying us, demanding right justice, God wants to take us as we are and transform us, even when we don't deserve it. God gives us new life in Jesus. Jesus serves us by being a worthy substitute to be destroyed instead, a substitute for fair justice. You can't simply take another sinner to right the wrongs of another sinner who is wronged. Only in Jesus can we find forgiveness, hope, and assurance, certainty. And God has forgiven us as far as the east is from the west. Not some fake, passive-aggressive forgiveness like we see from other people, but he has completely overlooked every little thing as if it never happened, if you take Jesus as your substitute. God offers us grace instead of demanding justice. His free, undeserved gift to us is Jesus. Jesus has served us in his death. But the crazy thing is, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose. Jesus rose from the dead, rose to glory and exaltation. Have a look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we watch movies or read stories, we love the characters that get their hands dirty and get right in the action, putting their bodies on the line for the greater good, leading their team at the very front of battle. Sacrificial love is what makes up the good guys. And it's a powerful element storytellers use because it speaks to us so strongly. There's so many examples of this. So I thought I might pick a few. Hopefully everyone can appreciate this. Being in New Zealand, I thought, I thought of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. You know that scene, you shall not pass? He stops that monster from getting to the rest of the group, but he falls into the pit as a loving sacrifice 
defending his people. Or Mufasa from Lion King. He gets right in there to save his son from the stampede and he even dies in the process. And Harry from Harry Potter. Hopefully there's not a spoiler. Who gives himself to rid the world of the bad guy, Voldemort. We can't deny that these are the good guys. The ones that deserve exaltation and, and we praise their loving sacrifice. But it's not just a fairy tale act. We even see this in real life. Hopefully I didn't butcher this name, but Suman Kunan, that Thai Navy SEAL who died trying to rescue those trapped Thai boys. Something inside of us loves, appreciates, and glorifies loving, sacrificial service. And historically, we see the epitome of that, the epitome of loving sacrifice in Jesus. But not just the epitome of loving sacrifice in his death, but the epitome of its result, praise and glory. The claim of history is that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus defeated death and was given the name that is above every name. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This isn't simply resuscitation, being brought back to life only to die again later. This is resurrection, life, eternal life after death. And this wasn't some accident. Jesus predicted it himself. From four different eyewitness accounts, we can have a look at one of them now. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, speaking about Jesus here. He then began to teach him that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. After Jesus' death, his exaltation didn't just stop at us paying tribute to him, homage for his loving sacrificial death, but his exaltation was rising again to new life so that we might all recognize him for who he is, the name above all names the name that is worthy of all glory. And he deserves all the glory. A time is coming where every single knee and tongue will bow down and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And one of the greatest things that keeps getting me, and it gets me to this day, is that God has chosen to show us all this, not through some philosophical idea that someone came up with, like Buddhism, Confucianism, or Islam, but God has chosen to show us all this through tangible historical events. Historical events that have stood the test of time. And we can't question what happened in history. And we are offered with historical texts with far more integrity and rigor than any other text that mankind has ever seen. There's over 120 times more independent copies of the New Testament than any other historical text. Christianity's claim is that the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually happened. And the claim we are confronted with today is that Jesus Christ lived, lived as God in the flesh, captivating everyone he encountered. He died, died the death we deserved, died for our desire to play God, pretending to be God, and rejecting the one who is sustaining our lives. And he rose again 
Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again, demonstrating his glory, victory over death itself, the preservation for all, the preservation of life for all who trust in him. My challenge to you today is to not waste your life, your time, and miss the most important person, the most important decision you could ever make. I don't want to see any of you caught on the wrong, standing on the wrong side of history. So, how are we to respond? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here's the thing. The God of this universe is in control of everything. He's making this world go around the sun. He's holding on to your life right now. And as you walked into the room today, that was God working in you. As God works in you, he wants you today to come to him and to face reality. You being here right now is him wanting you to hear this. To hear from God's very own words that he's made time for you. He's come in the flesh as Jesus, and he's died for you. So what I'm going to do in a minute is pray. And what I want to do is give you all an opportunity to do business with God, to face reality, no matter how uncomfortable it might be, and to stop living in the world you're making up. And if you're someone that has been captivated by Jesus, challenged by what God has said to you today, captivated by what Jesus has done for you, and you want to pray for the first time, then you can pray this prayer quietly to yourself. It will be up on the screen. This prayer is simply an apology, a request for forgiveness, and a thank you for Jesus. So join me in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we're sorry for going our own way. We're sorry that we've ignored you rejected you, and chosen to live life our way. Please forgive us for our sins. Please help us to remember who you are and to keep you at the forefront of our lives. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to take the punishment we rightly deserve. Thank you for opening the door for this relationship to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.